Good morning, everybody. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Lord, we come to you this morning. We, we gather on a Sunday morning banking that you're going to keep your promise, that, that your scripture is able to make us wise into salvation, and that all scripture, including confusing Old Testament prophets, is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching and for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You tell us that even Habakkuk, this mysterious, confusing Old Testament prophet, is inspired by you, and that you use it to make us wise and to salvation, to lead us to Christ, and also you use it in our lives to conform us into the image of your Son. And so I just ask that you would do that this morning, that you would use Habakkuk in our lives, if we don't know you, to lead us to faith and to make us wise into salvation. And if we do know you this morning, I pray that you would use it to, to change us and to edify us. And if we need to be disrupted this morning, that you would disrupt us. And if we need to be encouraged this morning uh, gently, that you would do that, that you would gently encourage us this morning. So we look to you and we ask that you would, that you would that you would keep your promise. Amen. So a couple of years ago, I was in a city in Southeast Asia on a mission trip with a group of college students. And, and I have, I've never in my life been to a place that felt as dark as this city, as, as spiritually dark as the city. Uh, I remember in, in the city, there was a 10-mile stretch of the city where more women are trafficked than any other 10-mile stretch in the world. In the city, there was an, there was a urban pop, there was a poverty that just pervaded the entire city. You know, oftentimes in the, in the United States, in the United States, poverty might be isolated to a particular part of town, but that's just not the case. The city of five million people, there was no street corner that did not bear the marks of intense poverty. And also, this city was 75% Hindu and 25% Muslim. And we really wanted our students to experience the city to its fullest. And, and we wanted them to know what it was like to live in the city, so we took them to a Hindu temple one day. And, and many Hindu temples are clean, but the temple we took them to is not clean. And, and I, can, I can remember taking these students inside this temple, and one of the first things we saw, we walked into the temple, and there was a blood streak across the floor from a recent animal sacrifice. And we watched another goat be dragged across, this, across the, the floor for the next animal sacrifice. And when we walked in, we saw a, a line that wrapped around the temple. We didn't really know what the line was. And so we, we had our students get in line, and we got in line with them, again, just to, just to see and experience this temple. And... And so the, this line, it kind of wraps around the building, and then it goes inside of this temple, and you see this long, dark hallway, and you can hear people screaming at the end of the hallway. And, but you don't know why. And eventually, we made it to the front of the line where, the, where all the screaming was, and I, and I realized what was happening, that as you walk down this hallway to your left, there's an opening in the hallway, and there is this massive wooden black idol with these beating red eyes 
And, and what was happening was this line was there in hopes that you get five to ten seconds in front of that idol. And you throw your money in front of the idol and you throw your prayers in front of the idol in hopes that it would answer your prayers. It, it was, it was a, a jarring experience, as you can imagine, for our group. And, and I can remember getting on the bus to go back to our hotel after, and there was this one student in particular who he came and sat next to me. And he said, he said to me, he said, David, I just, I, I feel like God has abandoned this city. I see no trace of him. I see sin and wickedness pervasively over this city. And it seems like God's doing nothing about it. Where, where is he? It just seems that he's abandoned this city. And I realize that that is a, a situation that may sound extreme in light of your daily life, but I think the question that student asked is not an extreme question for us. The question of how can God and so much evil coexist? You know, that, that's a question that people have wrestled with for thousands of years. There's so much evil and there's so much wickedness in our world. How can the God of the Bible be real? in light of all of the wickedness and evil that we see. And, you know, there's a lot of people, I, I, I would meet students all the time on campuses, who, for many people, this is enough for them to say, yeah, the God of the Bible is not even real. Because if the God of the Bible was real, he wouldn't let all of this evil happen. Oftentimes it's more um, individualized, where the student might would say, well, I can't believe in the God of the Bible because he let this happen to me. So I think this is a common question that people often ask. And this is the question that Habakkuk is asking in this book. Habakkuk is asking the question, God, where are you? I see so much evil. I see so much wickedness. How can you idly sit by in light of all of the evil and wickedness that we see? And because this question is so pertinent to our lives, I think we have a lot to learn from Habakkuk. So if you would, look, look there with me. I actually, I'm not going to have slides. I think it would be easier if you just have it open in front of you. I'm going to kind of bounce around to some different verses. Um, as you can see, we're taking a break from John. I'm, I'm going to preach a couple times this summer, and Clint and I have talked about, during the times that I preach, taking us through a different book. And so I'm actually going to take us through the book of Habakkuk um, over the course of the summer. I'm going to preach about once a month, and we'll work our way through the book of Habakkuk. This morning, we're going to be just in Habakkuk 1, like Ross read for us. And, um, and if you don't know where Habakkuk is, that's okay. It's a really small book, and a part of the Bible that many of us don't often visit. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. You've got a couple small prophets before Habakkuk, but then it's there. Uh, it's on page 662 in your pew Bible, if you need that. But there's a lot going on in Habakkuk 1, but as for kind of big, what's the big idea of Habakkuk 1? And, and I do think that the big idea is pretty simple, and this is it. That while God's actions might appear confusing and delayed to us, God always calls sin and wickedness into account. So I said again, while his actions might appear confusing and delayed to us, God always calls sin and wickedness into account. And also to give you a heads up, this book, in this book, Habakkuk is really dealing with the issue of human sin and wickedness. He's not going to touch things like tornadoes and monsoons, but, 
when it comes to sin and wickedness from the hands of people? That's the question he's dealing with. That's the question he's asking. So like I said, we've got a lot to learn from him. Our text today is going to naturally divide into three parts. The first part of verses 1 through 4, and this is Habakkuk's first complaint to the Lord. Verses 5 through 11, you're going to find God's response to Habakkuk's complaint. And then 12 through 2.1 is going to be Habakkuk's second complaint. So it's a pretty simple structure. His first complaint, God's response, and then his second complaint. So that's our structure. Let's jump in. Since Ross already read it for us, I'm just going to point out some things. So look at verses 1 through 4 with me. Do you see Habakkuk's question? In verse 3, he asks, why? Twice. And then you, you think, what does Habakkuk see? In verse 2, he sees violence. In verse 3, he sees iniquity or injustice, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, contention, or conflict. In verse 4, he sees the paralysis of the law and the ceasing of justice. And then lastly, he sees the righteous surrounded on every side by the wicked in verse 4. And where's God? In 2, he will not hear or does not listen. If you're looking at the NIV, he will not save. In verse 3, Habakkuk says that God idly looks at wrong. You know, anybody a basketball fan? Anybody like basketball? A couple, not really a lot. I, you know, the NBA playoffs are going on right now, and so, man, I am so sucked in. I've spent a lot of nights watching the NBA playoffs, and... Um, it's also the end of the school semester for me, so my brain is pretty spent. So there's been a lot of nights the past two weeks where I go home, fall on the couch, and kind of mindlessly watch the NBA playoffs. And I think that's the image that Habakkuk has in his mind right here of the Lord. Some, someone almost mindlessly, passively falling on a couch and just watching TV. Just idly sitting by. That's the image that Habakkuk has in his mind of the Lord. He's just idly, passively watching and doing nothing. Now, I, I, probably, I want to give some background to the book of Habakkuk. That I think this background will help us understand why Habakkuk is seeing these things and saying these things. And we've got to go kind of far back. So uh, if we go way back in the history of Israel, Israel was enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. And, and God rescued Egypt or God rescued Israel out of Egypt in a powerful way. He made a covenant with them, and this covenant was that he was going to be their God, they were going to be his people. And along with that, he gave them a promised land, and he took them to this promised land. Once they got to the promised land, they had a a handful of kings, and then eventually the kingdom actually split up into two separate kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was Judah. And the northern kingdom, pretty quickly, they turned their backs on the Lord. And they were destroyed by the nation of Assyria in 722 B.C. And shortly after Assyria wiped out the northern kingdom, they made their way south to Judah, to the southern kingdom. And and Judah was knocking on death's door. Basically, all of the southern kingdom had been conquered. All that was left was the city of Jerusalem. The entire Assyrian army had surrounded Jerusalem and besieged it. And you you can read, this is a remarkable account. In Isaiah 37, you can read about this, but 
in a remarkable, miraculous way, the Lord just wipes out the entire Syrian army and delivers the southern kingdom Judah. But as, the, as Judah continues to go on in, in their history, you see that pretty quickly, over the next 100 years, the southern kingdom begins to spiral. Both morally and spiritually, they turn their backs on the Lord, and the last godly king of Judah was a man named Josiah, and he died about 609 B.C., so about 100 years after the miraculous event. And the kings before Josiah, the kings after Josiah, were all really bad kings, They led Judah into sin, into idolatry. They led Judah to turn from the Lord. And because of the miraculous events that had happened 100 years before, Judah kind of thought that they were invincible. As long as they had the temple, and as long as they observed their rote religious routines, they were okay. Nothing was going to touch them because of what God had done 100 years previously. But during this time when Habakkuk was written, Idols were worshipped. Sexual promiscuity was weaved into the fabric of spirituality and worship. People cheated in business. They took advantage of others. The poor, the elderly, the orphan were neglected. People lived greedy and self-centered lives. Oh, this just went crazy on me. Hold on one second. This one on for me? I'll just ditch this one. I don't know what happened. This, these two pieces just separate on me. Sorry. I'll go with this stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Cameron. But what you see is that you know, all, all those, those examples I just listed, if you look through the prophets, those are all examples of things that the prophets condemned Judah for, things that were happening in Judah during this 100-year span. And they had, you see this in verse 4 in Habakkuk. They had the law meaning the law that God had given them when he made his covenant with them. But like Habakkuk said in verse 4, the law was paralyzed. It didn't affect the people's hearts. And they, in a sense, they showed up to church, but their hearts were far from the Lord. Sin and wickedness ran rampant in Judah, and according to Habakkuk, God was doing nothing about it, but he was idly sitting by And in Habakkuk's mind, this actually encouraged the people in their sin because they were living in sin. They had turned from the Lord, and there were no consequences. So they just thought, we can get away with whatever we want to. And that's why Habakkuk is concerned. That's the context of verses 1 through 4. Now, that being said, let's look at God's response, verses 5 through 11. So as you look at these verses, Habakkuk, in verses 1 through 4, Habakkuk accuse God of not seeing and not saving. But when you look at verse 5, God said to Habakkuk, look at what I'm doing. He sees wickedness and justice and violence and what he's going to do about it. He's going to send the Babylonians who will bring justice or they will be a law unto themselves in verse 7. And they're going to bring violence in verse 9. And here's the deal, this, this actually happened. It's, it seems pretty likely that Habakkuk was written sometime between 609 and 605 B.C. Twenty years later, Babylon showed up in Judah and completely wiped out the southern kingdom. And so this actually happened. What the Lord said he was going to do, he did. It just happened a little more slowly than... It, the consequences came a little more slowly than it appeared. And, you know, I realize that, that this is in the context of severe judgment 
But there's a sense in which what we see here should comfort us. And I say that because what we see in Habakkuk is that the God of the Bible is behind human history. We see that he, he rises up nations and he lowers them. He uses nations to punish other nations. I mean, we see that the God of the Bible is behind all human history. And this should comfort us. I know that, you know, I, I, so I left staff with Crew about a year ago. I was working for a campus ministry, and I left staff to go full-time to seminary here in Atlanta. And, um, you know, honestly, since I left staff a year ago, there have been many moments in my life where I have felt fearful and afraid when I think about the future, because my, the, my future, it, to me at least, it feels really uncertain. I made a career change. I went back full-time to school. I hope to pastor when I get out, but I have no guarantee that's going to happen. I can't predict the future, and, and the future feels very much out of my control. And I think the, the power of God that is displayed in Habakkuk 1, it should comfort those of us who are in Christ. And, and the power of God here should be medicine for our anxious and fearful hearts. So if, if you're here today and you're fearful and you're anxious because of something going on in your life now or, or maybe your future feels uncertain, take hope in the power of God that is displayed in Habakkuk 1. Let's move on to Habakkuk's second complaint. Pick it up in verse 12. And notice that the, the second complaint of Habakkuk it is heightened from the first one, but in many ways it resembles his first complaint. He, um, he, he says in verse 13, How could God idly look on and remain silent as the wicked swallow up the more righteous? Notice here, earlier in, the, in verses 1-4, through four, he talked about the wicked and the righteous. Here he talks about the wicked and the more righteous. And so I want to help us make sense of what's going on here. In 1-4, through four, Habakkuk is talking about the righteous, as in the righteous remnant in Judah that had remained faithful to the Lord. And the wicked were the wicked majority of Judah that had turned from the Lord. But here... In verse 13, the wicked are the Babylonians. The wicked are this nation that God is bringing in that they don't worship this God. They don't know Him. They don't recognize Him as the one true God. And the more, not the righteous, but the more righteous are the nation of Judah. And that's Habakkuk's complaint is, God, how can you use a nation as wicked as Judah to punish us. We are more righteous than them, and yet you're saying you're going to use them to punish us. So you notice that uh, the, the Lord answered Habakkuk's prayer, but Habakkuk doesn't like the, the answer. It surprised him. And you, even as you wonder, in Habakkuk's first complaint, I, I wonder to myself, what was it that Habakkuk wanted? What did he hope God would do? And you know, I, I bet what Habakkuk hoped for, I, I imagine... Habakkuk hoped that God would bring in a good king. They had a couple, they were in the midst of a bad king. I bet he hoped for a revival in Judah and that God would bring in a good king. 
I don't think what he wanted was that God would bring an outside nation to destroy his entire country. But that's what the Lord just said he would do. And this is a bit of a side note, but, you know, aren't we like this? Don't we expect, or don't we box God into answering our prayers in one particular way? It's not just that we expect God to answer our prayers, but we expect him to answer our prayers in the particular way that we have in mind. And what you see here is that Habakkuk is very surprised because God did not answer his prayer the way that he expected. And it makes me think that, you know, I don't think this is just me, but I think it's common for us to, to, to long for following Jesus to be like this straight linear line where this is where we are and this is what we hope for and that's where it takes us. When I think in reality following Jesus feels more like a zigzag back and forth, maybe even a better way to put it, it more so feels like we're in a dark cave and we see some light and we're just stumbling towards the light. And there's... um. There's a, a man from the 19th century, I, I really like reading about him, and I like reading his stuff. His name's George Mueller. And, and I remember a couple of years ago, I, I read a New Year's address that he gave. You know, kind of New Year's resolution time. People are thinking about the, the changes they need to make in their life. So he gave this a New Year's resolution address. And, and in it, I'll never forget this, in it he talked about how as we grow older, how easy it is to grow colder towards God as we grow older instead of growing warmer. And how common it is that as we go through life and, and life does not play out the way that we expected or hoped. And as we're disappointed with the circumstances of life and the way that things play out in our lives, how easy it is for us to become colder as opposed to warmer towards God. And I just, I think that's really insightful. And, you know, Habakkuk's pretty bold here in, in his response to God, but, you know, at least he responded. I, I wonder how we as Americans who we're so self-sufficient and such strong individuals, I wonder what we would do in a situation like this when we, we want our prayer to be answered a particular way and God doesn't answer it the way that we want. I would imagine as Americans, often what we do is we say, well, I'm just going to do it my way. And I think that's what George Mueller is, is afraid of, that as we grow older and we experience disappointment, instead of relying on the Lord, we just work things out by our own might. And slowly as we get older, our hearts just grow colder instead of growing warmer. So that's a bit of an aside. We're going to talk even more about that when we get in chapter 3 because that really is the crux of chapter 3, but I wanted to at least point it out here. So anyway, um, back to Habakkuk. Notice that Habakkuk's complaint, or notice what Habakkuk's complaint was in this plan. In verse 11, the Lord says regarding Babylon that their own might is their God. You see that? It says that in verse 11. And that's Habakkuk's main complaint in his second complaint. You see this in verses 14 through 11. He, talks some, he says some kind of weird stuff about fishing and nets. Hey, y'all see that? Like verses 14 to 17? Like, what in the world is he talking about? Basically, what Habakkuk's saying is that Babylon will think that they conquered Judah by their own might, basically by the strength of their net. 
not realizing that they conquered Judah because God used them to do it. And so, because they're going to think they did it by their own might, they're going to give themselves the praise and not God when they conquered Judah. And Habakkuk's got a real beef with this. He can't understand how God would use the people to do this. They're not even going to give God the glory and the praise. And then in verse 17, I mean, this is the apex of his complaint. He says, how could you let a wicked nation continue to mercilessly kill other nations? And then you see in, in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk is so upset with God's plan that he says, I'm going to go sit on the wall of Jerusalem and I'm just going to wait for you to respond because I cannot believe that you're going to do this. That's what he says. So that's big picture. That's what's going on. You've got Habakkuk's first complaint, God's response, his second complaint. And what you see, honestly, is that Habakkuk had questions in his first complaint about how God and human evil and wickedness could coexist. And it seems like now he's got more questions than answers. So there's a lot going on here. But again, to try to to try to summarize this chapter and kind of help us see what's the big idea of this chapter, I point us back to what I said earlier. I think the big idea is that while God's actions might appear confusing and delayed to us, God always calls human sin and wickedness into account. That's what this chapter is all about. It's all about Judah's sin which Habakkuk thought was being ignored by God, ultimately being called to account. That's what this chapter is about. And what we see is that God lets no one off the hook. There is no sinner who slips through the cracks in his fingers. He ultimately calls all sin and all wickedness to account. That's what we see in chapter 1. That is the big idea that this chapter displays for us. And, you know, this notion, this notion that God is ferociously committed to justice is wildly offensive to many. It might be offensive to some of you. It is, it is wildly offensive to our world that God would be this committed to justice. But here's the thing. We all know that we want and we need a God like this. We need a God who will one day right every wrong. We we need a God who is committed to justice. And in reality, in the history of the church, this truth has been such a comfort to the church in her history, particularly those who have suffered. It's been such a comfort. And I know I talked about we're going to talk more about something in chapter 3. When we get to chapter 2, we're going to talk even more about this point. But again, I think this is the big idea that God will bring justice one day, either in this life or the next, for all sin and for all wickedness. And when we think about that, and when we think about what that means for us individually, we should feel uncomfortable. It's easy to think about those out there, but then when we think about what does that mean for us, that God will bring about justice in our life, that that makes us feel a little uncomfortable. And I think it begs a question of, you you look back in chapter 1 and Habakkuk talks about the righteous and the wicked. You see these categories. He talks about the righteous and the wicked. And it begs the question of, who exactly are the righteous? 
Who exactly are the wicked? Maybe another way to ask it is, how do you become righteous? How do you become wicked? Because I know I want to be in the camp of the righteous. And you know, I think it'd be easy to read Habakkuk and to walk away from a reading of Habakkuk with a very moralistic understanding of Habakkuk that what it means to be righteous is to be really faithful to the law, to be really faithful to God's commandments, and the wicked are those who turn their backs on the commandments. So walk out of here and be faithful to the law and be faithful to God's commandments. It'd be easy to read it that way, but the Bible doesn't let us read it that way. And to help us see this, we need to flip over to Acts 13. So if you would, turn to Acts 13 with me. Acts is a book in the New Testament. It's right after the Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts 13. And in Acts 13, what's interesting about Acts 13 is that Paul is preaching a sermon to a group of non-Christians, and in the sermon, he quotes Habakkuk 1. And that's why I want to turn here, because he quotes Habakkuk 1, and so Paul's going to help us make sense of Habakkuk 1. And he quotes Habakkuk 1 in verse 41. So look at verse 41 with me. In verse 41, Paul quotes Habakkuk 1 verse 5. And he says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Now, if we go back to Habakkuk 1, what was the work that he was going to do? What, what was the work that was astounding? Well, in Habakkuk 1.5, the work that was astounding was he was going to bring the Babylonians and destroy Judah. That was the astounding work. So I think naturally when we read verse 41, it sounds kind of positive. Like, oh, I'm going to do this astounding work. But no, actually, this is really negative. The astounding work I'm going to do is I'm going to destroy you. That's the context of Habakkuk 1. Not a positive thing. This is bad. You don't want this. If we read the verses before this verse, it helps us understand what's going on in Paul's mind as he quotes this verse. And I want to read them. So look at verse 36 with me. Verse 36, so as Paul is preaching to a group of non-Christians, he says, For David, talking about King David, the, the greatest king in the history of Israel. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. Nice way of saying he died. He fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Talking about Jesus. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed or justified from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, and here's our quote, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perished, perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So if we look at this passage, we see that through faith in the man Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sin is granted to you. And that through trust in Him, you are freed or justified. 
from what the law of Moses could not free you from. And remember back in Habakkuk 1, Habakkuk said that the law had been paralyzed. And here we see a freedom that comes from a relationship with Christ that the law can never bring. So if we, if we import Habakkuk's categories of the wicked and the righteous into Acts 13, and we ask the question, according to Paul, who are the righteous and who are the wicked? Well, according to Paul, the righteous in Acts 13, it's not those who morally have their lives together. It's not those who keep the law. By all means, as Christians, we want to honor Christ with our lives. But that's not what ultimately makes us righteous. What makes us righteous is the freedom and forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, there's anything I want you to hear to this, that this is our ultimate hope as Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian, our hope is not in what we do, but our hope is in what Christ has done for us. And Acts 13 makes this so clear. And if we ask the question, who are the wicked in Acts 13? The wicked, according to Acts 13, are those who reject the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's those who reject Him as the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Because notice, it's, it's almost like in verse 36, 37, 38, 39, it's positive, 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 positive. And then verse 40, beware. And then he goes negative. And then he quotes Habakkuk 1.5, which is very negative. And so the wicked here, the ones who must beware, are those who don't turn to Christ. Those are the wicked. Those who don't accept Christ. And he sees, Paul sees, the warning of severe punishment for those who reject Christ, who don't turn to Christ as Savior and Lord. He, he sees the warning of severe punishment of Judah's sin in Habakkuk 1 as a pale shadow of the punishment that is coming for you when Jesus Christ comes back if you don't turn to him. That's, what, that's the point that Paul's making. Because that would mean that you were still in your sin, you are not freed, you are not forgiven, you were included in the camp of the wicked, and if you don't turn to Christ, you will be held liable and accountable for your sin when Jesus returns. And the judgment that, Ju the judgment that Judah faced in Habakkuk 1, as I said, it is a pale shadow of the judgment that you will face when you are held accountable for your sin when Jesus comes back. That is Paul's point in Acts 13. You see, apart from Jesus Christ, we are the wicked. We all are. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are the wicked of Judah in Habakkuk 1. And the punishment that is coming for them at the hands of the Babylonians, that punishment is a shadow of the punishment that comes for us apart from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. But this punishment that was coming for Judah is also a pale shadow in comparison to the punishment that Jesus Christ 
willingly took upon himself on the cross. To so think about that, you think about the punishment that came for Judah, the destruction that came for Judah, the death, the massacre, and it's pale in comparison to what Christ experienced on the cross. And what we see here is that God's commitment to justice is terrifying. But it also points us to his radical commitment to grace and love and mercy, which is overwhelming when you, t- when you put the two side by side. This is how you become righteous. Someone else took your punishment. Trust in him. If you turn to Christ, you were included in the righteous. You were forgiven and you were freed. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would use Habakkuk 1 in our lives to do what you need to do in our lives and and, and just what needs to be done in our lives. I I thank you that you are a God who is so committed to justice. And this is good news for us, that you will right every wrong. I'm thankful that that's who you are. And I'm thankful that you are also a God of extravagant mercy, overwhelming love, and that you sent your Son to bear this epic punishment that should come our way that the punishment of Habakkuk 1 just shadows. So, Lord, where we need to be comforted this morning, would you comfort us with the hope of the gospel? Where we need to be convicted this morning, would you convict us? And if there's some here who don't know you, I just pray that you would use Habakkuk 1 and Acts 13 to show us the light and to give them new hearts and new spirits. Amen.